The following is a message by Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Well, I was going to give you a cute little message on faithfulness in suffering, but the text wouldn't let me. I began to read the context, and the context was mind-blowing, describing the nature of God. And then the text I'd chosen really goes into the whole issue of the humanity of the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And so I felt like I had to broaden my perspective. And one thing I have to say at the beginning is that this text about God really uh, presupposes radical transcendence, typical of the entire scripture. I was fascinated to discover that a German liberal Old Testament scholar understood this. Klaus Westermann, in his commentary on on Genesis, says this. What distinguishes the Genesis account of creation among the many creation stories of the ancient Near East is that for Genesis there can only be one creator and that all else that is or can be can never be anything but a creature. Do you get that? He's basically saying that the biblical accounts thousands of years ago affirmed divine transcendence that had never been said in any other text in the ancient world. A German liberal got it. Machen would be thrilled. The radical transcendence of God, God the creator, everything else is creature. Well, if that's not mind-blowing, it gets worse. The subject of this sermon is God speaking in the Son, answering two further questions about God. Transcendence is obviously assumed, namely, who is God and what is man? Now, we're all acquainted with this heady stuff, but I would suggest we sort of step back for a moment and realize how mind-bending and amazingly unique This information is that we are called to believe and then to proclaim in our world. And so the context forces me to ask the question or try to see how the text answers the question, who is God, through that whole issue of divinity of the Son, and then what is man, also seen through the Son. So the context has us understand what God is by telling us who the Son is. He possesses the being of God, the divine attributes of God, and does the essential work of God. The being of God, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact the attributes of God of dominion is uh, that his throne is forever and ever, and he is also part of the essential work of God of creation. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth. Now, you see, in defending the divinity of the Son, what we get here is the amazing revelation of God as Trinity. 
a personal being existing independent of creation. Now, in post-biblical Judaism and Islam, for instance, and not to speak of all the non-Christian religions where the very idea of a personal God is absent, God, but in Judaism and Islam, God is a singularity. He exists alone, and thus finally and ultimately impersonal. Only the Trinitarian God can be both utterly transcendent and personal. So you see that first affirmation of transcendence that Vesterman saw, which is a wonderful notion of God's otherness, nevertheless, in the revelation of the Trinity, gives to us a God who is personal, absolutely essential to our message in today's world. Well, once we understand that, we understand what Paul says when he ascribes to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, honor and glory. Because these terms, honor and glory, or glory and honor, are used in my text, so to speak, chapter uh, 2, 5 through 9, to describe the nature of humanity, honor and glory. True of God, says Paul. Now, how does this apply to humanity? Well, if you thought that God is transcendent and personal, was difficult stuff, it gets worse. (laughs) Though the Trinity is a virtually unthinkable concept, God taking on human flesh is even more unthinkable, stretching our understanding of the creator-creature distinction to levels of mystery we cannot plumb. And yet, somehow we know it's true. The Docetists and the Gnostics couldn't handle it, The Jews of Jesus' day screamed blasphemy. God, the independent, transcendent creator, now speaks from within humanity as the incarnate redeemer. And you know that act of incarnation gloriously resolves the whole issue of God's otherness, what I like to call twoism. God who comes into human existence to join the creation and the creature in reconciliation. Well, the text asks, what is man? And answers it by citing Psalm 8. And really asks us to think about the humanity of Jesus in the first place, from a pre-fall kind of perspective, since Psalm 8 is a reprise of Genesis 1, where it shows us Adam, who is set above all things with everything under his feet. And so I tried to ask myself in looking at this text, what of the information we receive brings us some understanding in the humanity of Jesus, of the pre-fall humanity, what it was meant to be like, in order that we can grasp something, for us, of what our humanity should be like. Well, first of all, you have to say that the ideal human is truly human. And that's, of course, what this text says in no uncertain manner. 
the Son is not an ethereal angelic superman. He is not ashamed, says the text, to call us brothers. He is made like us in every respect. And that is because, of course, God created humanity. It is a perfect receptacle that God can use. The Bible pronounces humanity very good, unlike many religions which deny the flesh as a mere receptacle that can be ejected for the sake of the spirit or as maya, as an illusion. In the Bible, humanity is a fundamentally beautiful, good creation that God has made and I think that's important for us to affirm our humanity as something of glory and honor, if you like. Yeah, we're fallen, but in that project of God, this was a magnificent thing that God did. Also created ideal humanity, as we all know, involves authority and vice regency. You put everything in subjection under his feet, leaving nothing outside of his control. Well, that's obviously was true of Adam, but now, says the text, it was true of Jesus. And I began to ask myself, is Jesus on earth when he performs miracles and his control over nature, showing that everything is under his power, as the second Adam, rather than uh, just a miracle worker. This is not Jesus meek and mild stuff, but a true human being exercising control over the world uh, in the way that uh, perhaps it was originally intended. Now, that's a little speculative, but we'll leave that to one side. But anyway, uh, it maybe should encourage us to be courageous in our ministry, knowing that there is a a power intended for us in our humility. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, says the Apostle Paul, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Humanity is a good and beautiful thing, and we are here to exercise dominion. But created ideal humanity is a vocation from God. Christ didn't exalt himself to be made high priest, says the text, but was appointed by God, who said to him, You are my son, today have I begotten you. In other words, to be human is to receive a calling. It's not just a ho-hum thing. You kick the bedclothes off and jump out of bed and get on with your breakfast and just go on with life as if nothing is significant. This is a significant calling, an honorable activity that God has given to you and to me. And true ideal humanity, oddly, involves submission. This true man, like Adam before the fall, is a true son, submitted to the father, faithful to him, who appointed him. This is not a James Bond Übermensch, fiercely independent, beholden to no one. This is a perfect human being who nevertheless is submitted to the will of the father, and offered up prayers and supplications with reverence. All this, you see, is part of that original humanity. And I think we get glimpses of that 
through this text presentation of Jesus as the perfect man. And needless to say, glory and honor is applied to this view of humanity. But there's another aspect here that we cannot miss. We need to see the nature of true humanity as this text presents it to us, not simply in the pre-fall setting, but in the setting of the fall. And verse 8b makes a massive shift, really, in the definition of the notion of glory and honor. We're used to it, you know, Adam and Christ reigning over everything. That's very glorious, it's very honorable. But here's what it says, verse 8b. We now see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Do you notice? Because he suffered death. That's an odd use, it seems to me, of the notion of glory and honor. Now associated with the suffering of death. This is difficult to understand, but it's good to know that things are not out of control, even in the situation of the fall. So how does Jesus reflect that glory and honor in a fallen world in his humanity? This really does apply to us right now, today. And the first thing I'd say is that he defeats sin. To be glorious and honorable in a fallen world, in a human body, it is necessary to defeat sin. Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Now, obviously, we will never reach that stage of sinlessness unless, of course, we became Wesleyans. There's not much chance of that here. But the point is, you see, that he is our model, and that's where we must tend towards as we seek to follow Jesus. And don't think that you can be a true human being and mess around with sin. You will be destroying the possibility of any notion of honor and glory if you do that. And so many of us today are caught up in the modern vices of pornography and lust and various other kind of secret sins. And finally, that will all come out and you will be a failure, not a true human being. Let, me, let this text encourage you as it presents Jesus as the glorious and honorable human being as you follow him to forsake that sin that so easily besets you. In the second place, true humanity is revealed by Jesus as glorious and honorable involves radical obedience. Well, yeah, that's a non-brainer, but a no-brainer, but at the same time, it's absolutely true. If you want to know glory and honor in this world, you have to know the reality of radical obedience. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He was tempted as we are. There's that interesting phrase in chapter 10 where he says, When Christ came into the world, he said, A body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will. And it's very interesting to think of when he came into the world. It wasn't talking about his birth so much as his public ministry. 
What happened in his public ministry? Or what happened actually just preceding the public ministry? Well, it's very interesting that he is confronted by that being, Satan, who was described in Isaiah as the day star. And that description of Satan is almost the inverse of Psalm 8, when you think about it. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will make myself like the most high. And you are brought down to Sheol. It's that day star, diabolical day star, that confronts Jesus and proposes to him all the kingdoms of this earth. If he will just bow down and forsake God's will. And you know the courageous reply of Jesus. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus said that before Paul wrote Romans 1.25, by the way, which is interesting. And, and, and notice how scripture is an essential part of that uh, radical obedience. Here is a perfect, glorious, honorable human being, radically submitted to God's will as revealed in Scripture. But finally, the true human in the fallen state must see itself as a sacrificial offering. As the text that we focused on says, Glory and honor was bestowed on Jesus because he suffered death for us. This, in a sense, at the present is hidden glory. But it is, you see, the key to the cosmos. The key to true humanity is the understanding that you and I need as well that real humanity is self-sacrificing love for the unworthy other. How many times did you say that today when you woke up? That's what I'm going to do. Or am I going to try to make myself look as good as I can be and as successful as I can be? Is that why, how I will get glory and honor in this world? You know, we're all tempted by the Joel Osteen kind of thinking. Whatever you conceive, you can achieve. If you develop an image of victory, success, health, abundance, joy, peace, and happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold these things from you. It's a pity Jesus had not had access to that book, Your Best Life Now, when he despised the shame for the glory of the future enthronement. But you know, we live in that kind of attention, and Jesus gives us the example of how we should live. For he the best suffers the worst in self-sacrifice. Well, there is one aspect, and it's my final point. You'll be delighted to know that. It's the post-fall of humanity. Glory and honor associated with transfigured humanity, which is implicit in this text. One day, human glory and honor will be patently visible when Jesus is exalted as the true and final last Adam. And we will share in that because 
At the resurrection, says our text, he brought many sons to glory. And the Apostle Paul adds that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So his exaltation and resurrection, and then finally at the end of time, is that in which we will share. One day we will see Jesus as the last Adam of Psalm 8, reigning wherever the sun doth its successive journeys run and even beyond. Nothing will be left outside of his control, for he will take the original cultural mandate of subduing the earth and filling all things by filling heaven and earth. All things will be subjected to him. You know, this is quite a a heady sort of piece of revelation, isn't it, in one condensed little text. A revelation of the vast and mysterious person and cosmic work of God himself. But it's a word, of course, of exhortation to us to assume with confidence our humanity, to lay aside our sin, which easily besets us, To lay aside our discouragements. Everything is hopeless. Tinged by failure and mortality. Our myopic vision. Where we merely have a this worldly perspective. By looking to Jesus. As a surprising revelation. Not just of glorious and honorable divinity. But glorious and honorable humanity. Even in suffering. This is why Jesus is set before us in our time where sin reigns, which may be a time of persecution, where we are beset by our own weakness. And it encourages us to live honorably in our mortal flesh with faith, with optimism. In a certain sense, even now, knowing that by grace we are, by following Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Not from our own abilities, but from the grace of God. And we do so with hope and joy for a glorious future. This is a pretty heady encouragement, because we all look around and see how weak we are. So hear the words of the pastor of the sermon as he gives us a good word. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.